Welcome to We Are Homeless, the podcast that explores the pursuit of shelter by everyday people in the Bay Area. My name is Adam Garrett-Clark, and I've been living out of an off-grid home on wheels for the last five years. Once you drive down this rabbit hole, you push past the status overpass, hang a left on Frugality Road, and take a soft right down Technology Lane, you discover a number of interesting people living in interesting situations. This podcast is designed to let people in on these hidden housing alternatives that many of us believe will eventually be a legitimate part of our housing future. But today, unfortunately, our laws, culture, and narratives have not caught up with our basic human necessities for shelter. So here in the Bay Area, we are homeless. The moonlight sleeping on the midnight day. We are homeless. 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 The moonlight sleeping on the in the summer of 2018, I made the trip up to Eugene, Oregon, a beautifully crunchy place where homelessness is an equally tricky issue. I pitched a tent and stayed for three nights in a pretty well-known place called Opportunity Village. Opportunity Village is an experiment born from research documented in a book you should read if you're listening to this podcast. It's called Tent City Urbanism, From Self-Organized Camps to Tiny House Villages. It's written by a city planner named Andrew Heben. So Opportunity Village is a 30-person city-sanctioned village on the outskirts of Eugene. It's about half tiny homes. These are basically four-walled structures with a bed and space for furniture. And half of the housing are what are called Quonset huts, which which are basically these canvas tents with wood framing on wood platforms. Each participant pays about $30 a month to stay there and has to do a weekly shift working security at the front gate and pitch in for grounds maintenance. The village is most known for its self-governance structure, and I really wanted to see this place firsthand. So my time there was extremely eye-opening. It wasn't perfect. There was drama. There was toxicity. But overall, most of the people I interacted with were very thankful that the project existed and served as a resource to them in their own lives. My guest today is Ren, who was one of those villagers, and this is their story. Okay, Mr. Paul Simon. Somebody Somebody Hey, Ren. Speaking. How's it going? Good, how are you? Good. Hey, how are you? Thanks for making the time. Thank you. Uh, um, so I, I have a little like uh, gimmick for the for the podcast where I start every episode uh, by saying hello. So hello, Ren. Hello, Adam. <laughs> um, thanks for being here. So um, I was curious. Uh, your your email handle is uh, Swagman's Ghost. Did I get that right? I was curious. Uh, what yeah. I, I Googled that, and, and I came up with, like, a K-pop character. I don't know what Swagman means, but I figured out, I was too curious. What is what is Swagman's ghost to reference to? Uh, that's a, a reference to a, uh administrative handle I used on um, early Chan boards, uh, specifically 420Chan um, that I moderated and also used for a couple of Facebook 
groups. Uh, not really a reference to anything in particular other than my affinity for ghosts. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Cool. <clears throat> um, so, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, I think I would love to kind of get a sense of who you are, give folks a sense of who you are and where you're, where you're coming from. Um, sounds like you've got some some experience uh, in the the deep interwebs. But where where did you grow up? Where did you come from? Um, I grew up in uh, Center State, New York, in Oneonta, New York, um, a little city in the hills, uh, moderately sized, not too large, um, just just big enough to get into trouble and just small enough to run out of options. Um, <laughs> I, I really liked it there, um, but it was a, a sort of a weird environment because it was um, the further upstate you go, the less. Uh, prevalent liberal attitudes are, and um, I've, I'm a, a transgender non-binary person uh, who never really like came into that as an identity until like later adulthood. But as a a teenager and preteen, I remember thinking about these things and talking about them, and having an intense amount of alienation uh, throughout my my life which has been uh, something that's particularly hard to deal with in my current situation. Right. Yeah. Wow. Understandably so. And, and how, how did you make your way from there to Eugene, Oregon, where you currently live? Um, I had moved around a little bit. I spent time on and off between having places and uh, being something of a couch surfer in New York mm-hmm. um, for a couple of years. And after um, building up a small uh, catering business uh, with a couple of employees and a whole bunch of equipment and everything that I uh, was living with a partner at the time, had a relationship that sort of like broke up really, really badly and ended up having to move very, very quickly. So I got rid of a lot of my equipment and uh, basically had to start over fresh in Florida. Hmm. Um spent some time in Florida and really didn't enjoy it. Um, There weren't very good options for mental health there. Uh, I ended up running into a lot of issues trying to uh, just get counseling and afford medication. Um, And so a friend of mine offered me a position uh, to grow cannabis with him in White City, New York, or White City, Oregon. Ah. And uh, so I moved down there and started uh, working on that. And we were actually doing really well. We were um, making decent money. Our product was very good, uh, really satisfied with what I brought to the grow. And I was actually earning equity in the business. But we ended up getting in a situation where the landlord wanted more for the rent. Um, And since there wasn't a lease, there was a little bit of a disagreement. And the landlord made us move out prematurely. Um, Mm. And I didn't really have anything to float on at the time because I put all of the money I'd been earning into the business. Wow. So that's how I found myself uh, without means. Um, moved to Ashland to try and live off the streets there because I know where there's more affluence, there's more the actually bum from places. Um, but Say that again? You said you, you knew that there was more what in Ashland? More, more, more that you can bum. Like you can, people have more in more affluent towns. So like you'll actually like find more dumpstering or like things discarded by the side of the road or the services that they do provide for homeless people, there's typically more of it. 
But okay. in, in Ashland, I met other hostilities. Uh, that was the first place I went as soon as we had to close our grow because um, it was the nicest place I knew nearby. Uh, but very quickly, um, through some people that uh, were angry at me, I guess it had come out that I was transgender to some local skinheads who started uh, following me around. And one night when they found my camp, they tried jumping me. And I was on the bus the next day to Eugene. Wow. Um, that's and that's this is crazy. Where I've been since. Yeah. Wow. I mean, I, I wouldn't even think that a skinhead could exist in Ashland, Oregon. I mean, I've only been there a couple of days, but, wow, that is crazy. I mean, uh, I, I say skinhead even though, like, the original skinheads weren't necessarily, like, Nazis, but these guys were, were definitely, like, neo-Nazi white supremacists. Yeah. One of them had a big old swastika tattoo. Um, <laughs> I yeah, they I, still I, exist here. Yeah, I should take that back because I, 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 there is like a pretty widely recognized uh, history of white supremacy in Oregon. So actually, that shouldn't be surprising. But wow. uh, yeah, hey. the uh, place that we were growing was actually um, the location of one of the Japanese internment camps during oh, World wow. War Two. Yeah, wow. yeah. So a lot of a lot of really really troubling history in Oregon. Yeah, yeah. So so you made your way to Eugene, and. And and walk me through a little bit about like what the, the life was like in Ashland and Eugene, as far as fending for yourself, setting up camp. You said so you you acquired or you had a like a, a tent and some some sleeping gear and stuff like that that you would kind of carry around yeah, in the back. Or? I had like a single person tent and I had a, a little mummy bag, um, sleeping bag, like nice zips up to like the face, thermal. Um, and in Ashland, it wasn't too difficult to find food. Um, I didn't have to go to like any sort of food banks or anything like that because there's always somebody who's like finishing something at an outdoor restaurant and you just, Hey, could I have your leftovers? And sometimes they get a little weirded out and stuff, but that's like sometimes part of the lifestyle if you're living off of the actual streets. You know, yeah, you t- you take what you can get where you can get it, and sometimes that's the best eating you can do for the day. Um, but uh, that wasn't too difficult, and finding places to camp weren't too difficult because the residences weren't like the the way the city is set up is more like an artsy, hillsy sort of city, you know, being more affluent. So there's more places that you can actually find that don't have no trespassing or little like. On the outskirts of town, there were places where there were abandoned buildings. But oh. I only stayed there, like, um, a couple of days before having to come to Eugene. Just And I had to ditch my pack, and I had to ditch all my other stuff when I came to Eugene. Just yeah. couldn't stick around that spot. Yeah, and why why Eugene and not, you know, Bend or Portland or back, back to New York? Um, I thought about uh, Portland, or no, I thought about Bend. Portland, I didn't really want to, I'd heard bad things about as far as, you know, what it's like to be homeless there. It's, mm-hmm. uh, the grind seems harder, um, which is one of those things that I uh, I feel like it's really difficult. Uh worst part about being homeless is that even things that you shouldn't be in competition with, you're kind of in competition with, with other homeless people. Oh, like, and, like, how so? What, what do you, what do you, can you? Oh, like, oh, it's more, it's like anything that's available that, that people have is like when there's so little that's being directly provided to those that have not, it's like taking from 
the potential resources for somebody else. Like I, I don't can't help but feel bad just a little bit every time I go and get a food box thinking about somebody who may need it more because there's other resourceful ways I can get food for something like that. But right. it, it just puts like so many people in competition for like almost any resource. And that even includes like, you know, social resources, people to hang out with, like splitting time with certain people and, and who you can trust and feel safe with. It's, it's kind of weird. It, yeah, no, it just feels like every, everything's yeah. commoditized for us. Wow. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, yeah, and I mean, we should say you're you're still a, a fairly young individual. I don't know how old you are, but um, you know you. Yeah, I'm 30 years done, old. Done, okay. Yeah, so you've you've done a lot in your life. Sounds like, but you've also still got a lot in front of you. Um, so yeah, obviously that we we there's lots of other people that are that have a lot tougher time kind of functioning than than you do. But I mean, I don't know that outwardly that's what it seems like, right? Um, yeah. So, and then how did you get to uh, dignity? Or no, it's opportunity village, right? Um, I always yes. just use it to opportunity. Yeah. Um, I actually had just been. I suggested that I was staying at the UG Mission, um, which used to be a mission, and was able to set some of their own rules, like making um, going to service uh, mandatory and stuff like that. But then they were um, taken over by somebody else uh, and started getting federal funding. So now they're just a, a Title 90 shelter. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were that, – that was insufferable. Um, I'm currently – like I right now I live out of uh, a sleeping bag and on a little rollout yoga pad because um, I'm avoiding going back to the mission. Um, mm-hmm. it was one of the most mentally hostile environments I've ever been in. Um, just, I re- I remember you were, yeah, I'm glad you brought this up cause I did want to get into this. You, I remember when we spoke before you had, you had mentioned some of, yeah, the, like maybe you can flesh out, paint a picture for folks, what it's like to, to stay there. Well, yeah, it's. The day room is a very, very sad place to be um, because there's a lot of people who are usually physically sick and also mentally ill in very, very close quarters. And so there's a lot of times where people will blow up on each other. And, you know, if you have one person just start yelling at somebody else, everybody in the room is on edge. And Mm -hmm. there's so much more potential for other people to start blowing up at each other. And some of them have been there for a really long time. So they know the people there. So there's like drama about that. And there's, it's just this, this really, really unhealthy environment. And the way that the staff handles it is very much, these are the rules and you know, you don't have any exceptions to the rules. And yet at the same time, um, they've been asked like, can I see your list of policies? And they don't have any list of policies available to give. Uh, They don't take minutes at meetings where they determine policy. So, like, technically anything could be a case of discrimination. They just could make up policies on the fly. Like, mm. it's 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 nasty. It's Every time I've gone there, I've gotten physically ill with, like, very bad respiratory issues. And right, I've been told were... it's, it's, like, the human version of kennel cough. Right. You were mentioning it. You, you described it like uh, 
like kind of like a factory farm setting where there's like super bugs develop, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just in close proximity with other people's dead skin and mucus from them coughing and fecal and urine, like just everything and not enough hand sanitizer to sanitize anything. And like the people who stay there are often the ones that are doing the chores to like clean out the garbages and everything like that. So mm-hmm. like, I, I don't want to sound mean, but sometimes it's hard to find among those people, enough competent people to, to really keep that place clean. Yeah. How many people if, are we talking about? Um, we're talking about probably, I, I, I would say, very modest estimate, 120 to like 180. I I think they have the capacity to house like 280, but they keep at least one of the rooms is only for uh, people who work at night and sleep during the day. Uh, So they can't take people into those unless they're like on that schedule. But like they, they keep their, their beds mostly full. I would say when it's like not summer and not winter, they run at like two third capacity about maybe a little over. Okay. Um, and we're, we're talking about big rooms with lots of cots all next to yeah. each other in rows. Okay. Yeah, exactly like that. Yeah. Shared bathrooms when we're, when we're bathing and everything. Okay. And they, um, and they separate out, separate out the genders, right? Yeah, which is, you know, makes me uncomfortable. Um, right. You know, I, I don't like having to be one or the other, which, I mean, that's a lot of the way, like, any of our systems are set up. I kind of have to, like, force myself until I can legally change my gender to non-binary to, to be okay with uh, encountering that. But I shouldn't always have to either. Yeah, yeah. Um, And so... So you left there, and how did you get in? How was your? How did you hear about Opportunity Village? Just a, a friend of mine had mentioned it. Um, had given me a list of different places in town to put applications into, and was like, it could be months until you ever hear from them again. And that's exactly what happened. And I'd almost forgotten that I put in an application. Um, and so I got a phone call and they said, yeah, you, we, we were looking at your application. We want you to come in for an interview. I was like, oh, that's excellent. Um, I went in and I had my interview and I think it was maybe two days later they said that, um, you know, okay, you're on the wait list and I could come by and like use the facility to use the bathroom or, uh, uh, use the laundry, et cetera. Um, make use of the the yurt and the common areas and so i started doing that and before no time at all they they got me into the village um cool and did you set up a uh, tent like uh marty was doing or no no at the time i was living um I, i was living off of skinner's butte uh just living out in the sticks like in in some brush in a a park uh Feeling much safer than I actually did at the village at the time. And wow. Skinner's Butte isn't the nicest part of town around here. Yeah. And and throughout this whole time, I mean, what's the timeline from when you the 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 unfortunate uh, event of the your uh, grow operation getting shut down and you had no options to getting to the village? I mean, how long were you were you living on living rougher or yeah, quote unquote homeless? It was perhaps like 
it was under two weeks that I was in Ashland after the uh, Grove closed up. And as soon as I got to Eugene, I probably spent about a week um, bouncing to different uh, hotel rooms and stuff like that, trying to just at least get something together and see who I'm going to know in the city, et cetera. And right. uh, once my funds were tapped out, um, went to the Eugene mission, and I did that for probably five or six months. Um, then I got kicked out of the mission. Um, or no, no, I didn't get kicked out. I left, um, got an apartment and got a job. Um, but that job fell through because they wanted to train me for a director's position. And when I found out that comes with a salary that's actually a pay cut, uh, I said I didn't want to do it. And so they just fired me outright. And when I went back to the mission, um, because I tested positive for cannabis that I had smoked while I had an apartment, they uh, banned me for 90 days. And really? so that's when I started camping. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, when, once I started camping, um, I just did that felt so much more comfortable to me than doing the mission. So I never really went back there. So I'm still technically, like, banned from the mission until I have, like, a, a review or something. But I, I I haven't been back since because I really have no intention of ever going back there. Right. And then, so then you made it into Opportunity Village. And um, how long have you been there? Are you still there? I am currently pending an appeal for a, uh, a an eviction for something I think you witnessed. Oh, okay. Oh, so you so you've been asked to leave, and the, and you're appealing the, that that process right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, okay, so you're back out. You're back camping. I'm I'm back on the streets again right now. Um, I can I can still get access to my things if not to just pack but to reconsolidate what I'm carrying on my person. Um, okay. while the appeal is in process because legally I'm still a resident, but um, I'm wanting to abide by what council has said, um, which is that currently I am evicted uh, pending appeal. Okay, so at this point, the, the council is going to decide whether or not you can come back or not. Yes. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Um, um, that's, that's interesting. I didn't realize that was that was happening. Yeah, we have a um, a council that uh, when you come into the village, you sign a community agreement. And for all intents and purposes, that community agreement is the lease. Um, whenever there is a rule break or somebody could be found um, in breach of the community agreement, it is the council's job to interpret those rules, interpret how what to do about the violation of the rule break within a set of rules of what we can do. Give a verbal warning, um, written warning, 48-hour expulsion, and then the person can come back after serving 48 hours out, or a permanent expulsion. And typically, uh, it's multiple infractions of the same thing will drive you up a level. Um, however, depending on the severity, we can decide to go all the so way to one level. Are you experiencing the 48-hour expulsion, or are you in the? Uh, no, I'm I'm sitting at the expulsion for. Um, okay. And and this is actually a little a little bit of a unique case that I think uh, is going to be interesting to talk about. And is going to be interesting in in determining how these villages are are going to be able to handle uh, really intense um, intense events. I don't yeah, know well, if, if. Oh, go ahead. Uh, did, yeah. did you not want to get into that right away? 
I I do, but I think you've you've led up to something very juicy, and I I think I want to hold people's ears for a bit, and let's let's kind of back up and kind of explore what Opportunity Village looks like a little bit, and then we'll pick that up if that's okay with All you. Right. Yeah, that works. Um, um, so yeah, so maybe you can kind of give people a, a picture of what what it was like, maybe through the eyes of of Ren when uh, they first entered into the space. I mean, can you talk about how it felt to go from camping to uh, to moving into? Did you move into a a, a Conestoga or did you get right into the tiny? They put me there? in a Conestoga first, yeah. Um, okay. It was it was actually really really nice. Uh, it felt a lot like camping when I was in the Conestoga because everything was very close to me. But I tend to like to live more claustrophobically, like have everything at the ready and very close by. Um, mm. So those those sort of trappings didn't really bother me as much. Um, ultimately, it felt really nice to to feel safe um, from other people. Uh, mm. You know, as I mentioned, I had that run-in in Ashland. I've been uh, facing alienation uh, most of my life. And so, like, I don't – I have a, a hard time with security, and I get a lot of sleep issues with, um, mm. you know, I can't just sleep anywhere. If I can, I try to find somebody that I can sleep with uh, that mm. I know because I always feel safer in numbers. And mm. so being in a, a little gated community with my own little unit and everything really helped me feel a lot safer. And mm. at first, things went really well. Um, I was uh, seeing a therapist. Uh, I had a caseworker that was working on um, getting me into housing for people with disabilities after that. Um, that, was all, that was all coming through resources through Opportunity Village? Uh, a, good, a good portion of that. Um, one of the things Opportunity Village was going to help me do was legally change my name and gender um, and get an identification within the state because so far I only have my passport and that's going to expire uh, this mm. coming year. Mm. But uh, they got me a year bus pass, um, just a, a whole bunch of different services that uh, I, I would have had to like been enrolled in, in like at least three or four other different services through different agencies, which, you know, I am neurodivergent, so I have a hard time with uh, maintaining schedules and juggling like multiple agencies that I have to work with for like one task. Mm -hmm. um, what did you say? You you said you were a, a what? I'm neurodivergent. Oh, um, neurodivergent. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Nice. Oh, I, I love that phrase. I, I just learned that. Or I learned that term, uh, I don't know, a year or two ago. It's a really cool it's a, Yeah, really good blanket state uh, phrase. I like it. Yeah. Um, okay, so so it, that that caused made, made it a little tougher to kind of navigate all the paperwork and stuff like that. Yeah, Dude, yeah. Right. Um, and the, the shower, there's showers there, there's a kitchen there. Did you, yeah, there? yeah, we have a kitchen. Um, we receive food through Food for Lane County. Um, once a week, we get, like, perhaps 8 to 12 banana boxes full of food. Um, that is free access to everyone. Um, we have a donations closet where uh, if people make donations to the village, uh, sometimes we get, like, mini fridges, mattresses. We get lots of clothing, um, sometimes cookware and stuff. Yeah. Um, and, all uh, of that. Oh, go ahead. 
Oh, no, that's, that's all I had to say. And, uh, and the internet, there's a little kind of internet cafe going on in the yurt, right? Uh, yep, yep, we have, we have Wi-Fi. Um, we, during my stay, got an extender so that people can get the Wi-Fi within their units as well. Oh, nice, for the phones and such. Yeah, cool, yeah. yeah. And then, and then, what were the what was the what was the social dynamic uh, when you got there? I mean, were people welcoming to you? Uh, how, how did that kind of play out? There's thirty people, were, people you're dealing with, right? Thirty people. Yeah, yeah. Um, people were very welcoming. Um, they were so welcoming that they got me uh, voted on the council within a month of my being in the village. Uh, as soon as I got off of the probationary period. Um, right, and, and and tell us about tell us yeah tell us about that uh, the council responsibility that's an added that's some added work right and yeah and yeah it's it basically means that we interpret the the rule breaks and uh, enforce them you know if somebody isn't doing their uh, eight hours community restoration or gate shift um, then we would hand them we'd serve them with a write up um, basically saying here you, you've broken a rule. Um, but that ultimately council is one of the things that made a very hostile environment for me in particular, uh, at opportunity village. Um, Mm. there's a a lot of people who sort of treated council or viewed council as, um, sort of a popularity club or a means to an end as though Mm. if you had some personal grudge with somebody, you could, use your position on council to, you know, make anything a rule break, essentially. Mm. Um, and I ended up having a long-term drama that I was trying my best to avoid with another villager who had been voted off of council, um, a vote mm. of no confidence, uh, because people were convinced that she was using the council um, to her own devices, um, which I, I'm fairly, I, I feel safe saying was primarily the case. Um, but that eventually uh, turned into personal drama where she uh, had approached another villager that who, who then told me, so it's, as far as I know, it's hearsay, but she approached another villager and said, I'm going to do anything I can to get Ren arrested or kicked out of the village. Wow. And so from that point on, there was subtle provocation um, and little, like, incidents where, like, being belligerent and saying things that there's no real response to, but sort of bait the response, you know, the kind mm. of statements that can't just be let, let alone. Mm. Um, really just trying to get anything she could. Um, and at one point she physically attacked me um, and her fiance kept her from being able to get uh, close to me. So I, at that point, was had my guard up. You know, if she's going to be close, I'm going to, you know, be ready to protect myself. Um, so, like, two days later, uh, there was an incident, um, and she uh, started using my dead name. Um, you know, I don't – I go by Ren. I don't use the name uh, that's on my birth certificate. It mm-hmm. uh, refers to somebody um, that most people didn't really know. Um, somebody that, you know, now coming into my identity, uh, I I don't really know as well as I thought I did. Um, but, like, this is a person who I think knows full on what dysphoria is and understands that the, the primary symptom of it is 
suicidal ideation um, and knows that it's very, very psychologically and emotionally damaging to dead name somebody to uh, misgender them purposely. Mm. Um, and she sort of weaponized my name um, in this interaction. And so I threw my coffee at her and she immediately started charging me. So I was like, okay, this is it. I have to get off the property. I left the property. She charged me and attacked me and I ended up having to defend myself and she wasn't prepared for that. Um, so she ended up getting a restraining order on me. Um, and that was how she eventually got me arrested. And unfortunately, it happened to the day that I was served uh, an eviction. It happened maybe maybe like a week after the event. Um, got served an eviction uh, for attempting suicide. Um, so that's that's oh. actually what that's what we're looking at right now. Um, I, I, I oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, 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 please, please. Um, I believe, I believe, if, if, because I'm I'm not the best with uh, dates. I have uh, a uh, minor brain damage from the last suicide t- attempt I had. Um, I so like dates when things occurred aren't quite real to me. But I believe the first night that you stayed, you 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 did a little stay in Opportunity Village. I believe you were there that night. I yes, I I. Did I was really really groggy uh, from my perspective. I was, I had been up all night on a Greyhound bus, and so I was just fast asleep. But I did kind of wake up half asleep and hear a lot of uh, barfing. And I thought somebody was like really really drunk or whatever. But I was like not fully awake to be like, oh, I should get up and help. Um, and you know, and then later, yeah, I heard that that was you. Um, and uh, I, but I didn't realize that when that was happening that you had that day been served eviction uh notice. Is that No, that no, was no, I was of... I was served eviction for that. Oh, okay. okay. For for the suicide attempt. Um one of the things the community agreement says is no self harm on the property. Um so that's uh, and where it is right now, um I actually and I understand. I'm, you know, I understand that it is a very traumatic thing. I, I traumatize the people who had to be witness to it, and I get that that's very, very difficult for them, um, and that it might be easier for them to deal with those feelings if I wasn't in the village. Uh, at the same time, it's it's very difficult to uh, see a piece of paperwork that says, you know, for in in different words. Hey, you're you kind of like don't feel you feel hopeless and, and kind of want want out of life. You should move out. Right. <laughs> you know, like yeah. like it's so so. I'm I'm looking at an appeal and it's and it's primarily going to to have to be repairing uh, relationships and and trying to 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 make people okay with the emotions that are going to be lingering with what happened. Right. So are you are you making so you're you're making attempts to try to meet with people off site and or talk on the phone to try to repair Yeah. Yeah, there there's a support committee that's uh made up of a bunch of volunteers um of of people who know the board of uh board of directors um who often will um mediate uh for people who have like 
you know, they have a, so, a social issue with another villager, they need some form of mediation so that it doesn't necessarily have to go to rule break or we don't have to necessarily, oh, yeah, it's this disruptive behavior or what have you. Um, they're going to set up before the appeal, and this isn't uh, typically the process. They're going to set up one-on-one um, interviews with, with me, with anyone who's willing to try and be like, listen, I, I just wanted to get my feelings off my chest that we haven't talked since the event. You know, I've been very upset. I'm sure you guys are upset. Um, but, but try to get, like, some one-on-one going. And then I'll have an opportunity to appeal to the council. Uh, if the council doesn't approve of it, I'll have an opportunity to appeal to the village. And then the village can vote as a whole. I see. Wow. Well, this is this is a, a really cool process. Um all right, I so Ren, you know, please forgive me. I'm not uh I, I, I don't you know, I don't wanna stir up any any uh unnecessary emotions. Uh but so it, like if it's not if it's not there, like let's let's move on. But I am curious about like kind of what and I think other people would be curious like if you could if you could open up a little bit about what was going through your mind that night. Um and also we should we should kind of just like tie the knots there. So you it was that you you uh, drank some bleach, correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, which for anyone listening, if you know, I hope that it, first of all, if you're feeling suicidal, uh, reach out to somebody that you care about, talk to them. If there's nobody available to you, uh, call the suicide prevention hotline. Um, we'll get that number somewhere in this podcast available. Um, yeah, for sure. I I do not suggest drinking bleach because it's not a very effective way of, of doing it, and it hurts a lot. Um, I, there was a lot of vomiting blood, and uh, there was a lot of dissociating. Um, I've suffered with suicidal ideation for literally as long as I can remember. Um, my at least second earliest available memory was uh, feeling suicidal and, and talking about it with my mom. Um, but it's, it's something that I've dealt with all my life. And every time that I've made an attempt, um, which is at this point, uh, four times, it's been a very out of body experience. Um, as though I'm fully dissociated, uh, I don't really have control over myself. I'm just sort of watching the events unfold in front of me. But I also usually sort of have like, brief images of, of those things happening before it happens. So I have something of a, a, a warning, but it's it's not always easy to um, sort of pick up that that's what's going on. Yeah, um, wow. In terms of specifically what I was feeling at the time, I um, was getting too invested in another person who was in a, an abusive relationship. And it was ending up doing uh, just a lot of damage to my well-being. I wasn't focusing on the right things. Um, I had been dealing with uh, the dysphoria that I felt from the uh, transphobic attack against me uh, previously. Um, and and feeling sort of, uh, if I'm being honest, a little bit disappointed in um, any expediency to response to uh, having been attacked. Um, either the first physical attack or the second um, verbal attack and then physical attack. That a, a lot of that was, you know, because the only witnesses to 
to see the actual physical events were me, her, and her fiance. Like you can't really fully coming from a third party aspect trust either side, especially when I guarantee both of them were very drastically different tellings of the same events. Mm. Um, but but I just I felt like I felt very alienated, um, mm. and this is something that uh, I have dealt with being neurodivergent all my life. Um, I'm very well spoken and very high functioning and and dare I say clever. And that I, oftentimes I would, <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. I would just say I would totally agree with all those statements. Yeah. So, oh, anyway. thank you. Yeah. Um, I I I fake a lot of social stuff. Um, I'm actually like incredibly nervous right now. Um, even even dropping such casual words as like, uh, but I I've gotten the sort of habits that make it seem as though I'm not always second guessing. Um my social standing or my value or what people are thinking about me. Um, those things are always happening. And because of that, whenever um, there's, there's any sort of like rubbing of elbows, like things are getting a little rough between people, which it, it started getting with some of the people I would have uh, considered very dear friends, uh, people that I still would say I love very much. Um, the people whose relationships I now have to repair. Um, they started getting kind of distant and and a little prickly and stuff like that. And uh, it's tough when I don't understand what they're upset about, but I can pinpoint like behaviors that I know triggered it. I just don't understand why it's upsetting. And when I don't understand why something is the way it is, it's so hard for me to then internalize the appropriate habit. But uh, it, it was ultimately all those feelings going through my head. Um, the feelings of alienation, the feelings of like, you know, I, I still, even though I feel fairly comfortable with my body and and my identity, I'm still going to have people who will weaponize it and try to try to hurt me because of it. And yeah, well, I, I mean, look, thank, thank you so much for stepping up and, and opening up and confronting, uh, and educating us on, on your perspective on that. I mean, that's, I, I, I just can't thank you enough. And I, and I, I hope you, uh, you don't feel too nervous because you're, 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 this is probably one of the best interviews I've ever done. Um, oh, thank you. And, uh, and that's, that's because of the, the partner that I'm with here in this conversation. But, um, you, you touched on the, the alienation that you felt, uh, that you spoke about. I mean, I, I got to tell you, like, if I was in that situation, I, I would I would feel it as well. And I think I heard a lot from people that I spoke to when I was there, a similar theme. Uh, it, it seemed like I, I, I literally I spoke to many people there that kind of alluded to this perception that everybody hated them. And they felt like everybody, when they were off talking, was talking crap about them. And everybody kind of had that perception. Um and and I and I realize you know because I live in a community as well that like you get close to those people and that's 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 like your you know it's your support group that's your family in a way uh, and so if you do feel like you're on the outs it could be I can understand yeah. how that could be really tough I mean but but do you do I you I think that, that that's of, um I think I think it's one of those things that's like you know this sort of a communal living um, takes 
quite a bit of its roots from co-ops and from uh, communism and different other socialist movements and stuff like that. But there's always still like certain hierarchies involved, like with with the Opportunity Village, there's a support committee and then there's the board of directors whose decisions can usurp the decisions of council. And while like the village is trying to be set up so that we could be self-governing, ultimately what it really does is create a weird us and them attitude. Like interfacing with support feels like we as the village is the us and support is them. When mm-hmm. interfacing with council, it feels like we, the village, are us and council is them. And it just, that attitude then starts getting where, like, you know, people get clicky like that. Right. And and that was where uh, uh, the the person who was trying to get me arrested um, was actually trying to enlist other people. That was the, the, the purpose of going. You know, that's mm-hmm. why I heard about it was that she was trying to be enlisted. And it was like, I'm not really interested in doing that. So, like, it definitely it's a, a weird mom mentality takes over. Um, but I think that's that's what happens when you have these hierarchies involved. Mm. Um, now, it's interesting you say that because one of the other themes that I kept hearing was the self-governance. While it is, it is kind of like the calling card of Opportunity Village, and people like myself have been – I've read the book and talk about the model um, – and how it's like, you know, it's it's the way we should go. But when I was there, I heard from many people that the self-governance piece was needed to go. Uh, you know, in practice, it just it's it's so much more work to put on folks. I mean, you know, even in my community and lots of the communities that I've lived in, there isn't much of a process. And and uh, you know, whether or not there's a, a hierarchy or not, there isn't like the meetings and the and the the process that you guys have that um is a lot of work not just like physical time work but emotional work that um it just it it makes things worse is what i was hearing i don't know if that, i mean do you yeah. see it differently well i feel like the self governance could work um if it was clear how much we were able to govern um for instance like having a council as as representatives of the village isn't necessarily that bad an idea uh, until it can get clicky or people do try to use the position. But ultimately, mm-hmm. council is only supposed to be serving a, a, a model for the the way that the 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 community was set up already. Like council mm-hmm. couldn't make decisions about like changing a bathroom policy or something like that. They could discuss the idea and then present it to the village for vote. So at any time, the village at large can vote on things. But what that ends up doing is, like, let's say your average stay for a person is, like, 18 months. Um, Mm -hmm. After 18 months, while a person is there, they might see the same rule get appealed, put back on, appealed again, put back on again. Because, it, like, there will be certain rules about, like, what to do with the sink in, sink in the kitchen because that specific sink has a specific problem and then the sink will get replaced. So now we don't have it. Oh, well, now this sink has the problem again. So we put the rule back on. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, um, yeah, there's a lot of issues of making amendments and appealing things because you discover as you go the wording of certain rules sort of allows for gray areas or something else. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. biggest things that I made sure to do while I was on council, um, we had a villager who was HIV positive, 
and was being treated with discriminatory behavior from another villager. And as a council member, I said, I absolutely won't allow this to happen. We have one of the rules is um, no disrespecting other villagers. And I know that that's been a gray area, that how do you determine that somebody's intent was disrespect and can you punish somebody because somebody thinks something is disrespectful without the intent being there? Right. I, I said, I want it to be clear this is a discriminatory behavior and I want it to be clear that that's disrespectful and that this is absolutely something we can do a rule break on. Um, but there was a lot of times where there was a, a lot of sitting on hands and arguing, like, arguing like a bunch of arbitrators. Like, I, like I felt like, <laughs> I felt like a lawyer sometimes just mm. arguing the definition of a word for the sake of an argument. Right. right. And that's, you know, that's, that's the extra labor and work that people mm-hmm. have to do in addition to, you know, dealing with trauma or trying to get back on their feet or trying to get past, you know, uh, a substance situation. Uh, so I don't know. That's, that was some of the feedback I got. Okay. So we've talked a little bit about support. I just want to loop people in define terms. So we, we, the council is, is like a, a smaller group of villagers who's been elected and they're kind of in a leadership role and they make decisions, uh, mostly kind of around rule breaking and, and propose new rules to the broader village. Now, support is actually people that live nearby that um, are just kind of volunteers, right, that want to yeah. ensure that the village project works. Is that right? Yeah, they volunteer their time, and um, they'll do things like take people to uh, meetings. They'll do uh, peer mediation. They'll... they'll um, sometimes do paperwork or help you with getting funding for things if they have funds to like they were going to uh help me get uh well c c card get mine renewed mhm right, but they kind of have uh they have some authority i mean can you explain how how support the housed people in the area how they have kind of authority and there can be an us versus them. What's the dynamic there? Yeah, they they often say that they don't have authority, but if support were to come to a meeting and say, we're doing this, it's not like the village could say, well, we're not doing that. Mm. Um, they, they oftentimes come to the village as representatives of the board of directors. I believe at least one of them is on the board. Um mm. Their role is fairly nebulous, and that's, I think, where it's easy for the us and them dynamic, especially between villagers and support. Um, but I, I think they, they wanted their their purpose to be more nebulous so that they don't end up overstepping some of the, what would be the responsibilities of villagers for the sake of their self-governance. Mm. It's It's one of those things where it's like, the system is is pretty nice, but there's nobody really in the village who knows how to work within those sort of systems. So, mm. like, when, when something comes up for vote, there's just a, a lot of talking about aspects that we're not even voting on. Um, mm. You know, like, it, there might be something that, in order to happen, has three stages of voting. And we're talking the minutia of what will happen after it's done. I mean, I, we're not even equipped to think about that yet. Like, 
it, it really gets uh, uh, quite cluttered. And a lot of that is also because whenever uh, we have these discussions at a village meeting, support also has their interests. Um, and sometimes uh, addressing what's feasible isn't, uh, let's see, isn't, isn't a, a soft blow to give. And so sometimes um, certain people feel like things are misrepresented. Uh, I know I've certainly felt like uh, certain things that support said they were going to do were being misrepresented um, for the sake of uh, saving any anger that we might have. But that felt like more like insulting my intelligence that I, I didn't know. Well, you, you just say you can't do that. Uh, huh. Okay. Yeah, yeah, so are, are we talking yeah. about like limited limited resources sort of deal? Limited resources. Um, at one point, there was questions about the budget, and um, they brought a budget report and didn't think that anyone in the village knew how to read a budget report. Um, they were they were trying to say that it was um, uh, maintenance and uh, utilities that were making their budget uh, shrink when, like, I read the report, that wasn't the case. It's because they actually budgeted themselves a salary before they budgeted everything else. Mm. So there's, there's like... That's because uh, there's, there's one staff person, right? One one part-time staff person? One part-time staff person, um, CEO, and one other uh, salaried position. That I can't remember okay. exactly what it was. Okay. Sorry, I cut you off. Were you going to say something? I can't recall. Okay. Um, all right. So, but on that note of the of the so of, of support and the staff, um, maybe I can wrap this question up. Or this is kind of a few questions, but I mean, I I I definitely heard murmurings of um, kind of some like conspiracy theories or maybe not uh you know about uh you know that they're they're just taking tours of our village to get people sympathy and then all the money that people donate goes to emerald village or uh you know somebody said that there was like you know there was a they went to a fundraiser and they watched all these big checks go you know in and then they don't understand why there's no no money for for opportunity village um, I mean, that goes right back to one of the things when I said um, it feels like things were misrepresented. I got very, very angry um, at a, a village meeting when we were discussing the budget and everything. Um, uh, at the meeting when they re they presented the budget, which wasn't I, – I wasn't primarily interested in that. One of the things they said is that the money goes directly to Opportunity Village. Then they explained it goes into a square one account. And then it goes into a chapter for Opportunity Village, which by definition is not directly to Opportunity Village. That means it goes to a square one account, and then a uh, accountant decides to put it in the Opportunity Village chapter. So, like, mm -hmm. it's it's little things like that that they would do, like, where, you know, don't tell me it goes directly there if it doesn't. And if there is an accountant that can potentially put it either in the square one account at large and then later filter it into the Emerald um, Village account, I personally didn't know too much about, like, the real whispers of things going to Emerald Village. Um, and it wasn't – it was something that, like, I wasn't the most invested in, um, 
but as, as far as I know, it seems entirely likely that's the case. Um, and I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to like kind of, I don't, yeah, I don't want to like kind of spread rumors or gossip. I mean, I, I just, I, I guess I wanted to, you know, we don't know one way or the other. I don't want to indict square one on this, but I, no. uh, I, I, I guess I brought that up to say that there is, to kind of illustrate that us versus them mentality that can kind yeah, of and that's that's exactly yeah exactly because then like Emerald Village is the way that it's set up. Um, they want to get people who have been in Opportunity Village into Emerald Village, and Emerald Village is a rent-to-own sort of situation where right. each unit has a bathroom, etc. So like it's a little bit nicer. And when people look at that and they see some of the, the old residents going over to Emerald village, like, Oh, how come they get the better stuff? It's like, mm. well, theirs is a different project and it's not necessarily, you don't know for certain that every single thing that comes in, that's supposed to be for opportunity village. It doesn't have square one written on the, the name. Right. 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 Yeah. And I, and I guess like, so there's the, that's authority again. I mean, I heard a lot of people say, basically, you know, one guy said, he's a, he was a guy that used to live there. Um, he said, like, you know, I'm a I'm a con artist. You know, I'm, I'm a former junkie. Like, I, I gained the system. And uh, the rules are just not too clear here. And, and he, was, he was basically advocating for, like, a harder kind of somebody else than a thumb of God. Like, just some sort of authority with some clear rules and, and a – yeah, basically just kind of like no more self-governance and just have like kind of a more of an authority. Do you, do you, where do you stand on that? I mean, do you, do you agree on that or do you, or do you feel like the self-governance can work? I, I, I would go the opposite way. Um, I'm, I'm an anarcho-socialist, uh, primary uh, anarcho-syndicalist. I believe that, you know, there should be no unjust hierarchies. I don't. I don't believe in the concept of hierarchy. Hierarchies for anything other than needs, and then those needs being met, um, because those those are justified hierarchies. Um, I I think the communal system works good. I think self governance works good. Um, I'm not going to say what form of government. Uh, is best because the the model that we're seeing now, I guess, would be somewhat bureaucratic um you know the council is beholden to what uh support or uh the board says but you know the village is beholden to council when it comes to enforcing the rules etc um i don't know i guess i've i've always liked certain elements of the uh squatters movements of the 60s and 70s um i really like the original french anarchist movements um, I've, I've always been into, uh, co-ops and communes. Um, I feel like they work fairly well. Um, but ideally, uh, as, as, when it comes to like little, little house villages and stuff like that, I think that they're a good model to show if we can get larger welfare systems that are providing situations like this. Um, but having already worked out the kinks of, of like how to govern them, um, mm. where resources will be available, how to allocate resources, et cetera. Um, it's almost like social experimenting, uh, to a degree. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah. And on that note, I mean, so there's a guy, I think his name was Carlos. I want to say who the guy with the little dog on his shoulder. And yeah, he, yeah. 
Yeah, and he was saying that he lives in the other little village just down the street, the like the safe camping site where it's like all uh, Conestogas and tent spots, and it's like 15 people. You know what I'm mm-hmm. talking about? Yeah. And he was he, you know, and, and and he was like, you know, I he we were talking about you know the kind of there was a lot of there was a lot of kind of toxicity or you know kind of drama going on when I was there, uh, and and I'm sure that was not typical. Uh, but things were kind of like boiling, but, uh, he was saying like, you know, it might just be the numbers. I mean, and it makes sense to me, like put 30 of my closest friends together in a community, there's going to be weirdness and drama real quick. Uh, and, um, you know, not to mention if it's a bunch of strangers coming from different angles. Uh, but he said that there was, it was a lot more laid back and chill when it was that size 15, uh, people. And do you, do you think the size matters? I think so. I I think uh I think more than anything what matters is the fact that um none of these people these people are coming into a communal situation without any feeling of ownership and that sort of, you know, workers ownership, we are the ones putting in the labor to make the village good and yet at the same time this isn't my toilet, this isn't my kitchen. Um, this, there seems to be, again, this us and them sort of attitude, you know, and part of that comes from, um, the community agreement, the actual rental agreement is, you know, is this a shelter? Is this actually a title 90 or is this a rental property? And that's always created then, well, if it's a rental property, there is an us and them. There's the landlord and then there's the tenant. If it's a title 90, there's not, it's, it's us. And I think that because that's always been sort of a gray line with the way that the village functions, it creates that more, I think, because the people involved are not in the circumstances voluntarily. That's, mm-hmm. I think that's a huge factor. I think, I think we all feel the stress of capitalism by this point. And, and <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it makes functioning in, in a place where we actually have all of these resources and then determining who has access to or how to enforce like the use of space and communal use of space or the social aspect, it gets a little more difficult. And and especially when it doesn't feel like it's actually yours though too, you know? Right. Yeah. No, that, that's, yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because Carlos, I think it was also who said that because he, he's been there for a long time and he said that there was like, there was there was kind of two factions that he broke it down to where there was like the older group of people that had been there from the beginning and they had spent the time building out the village like putting in their physical labor like developing the village and they felt like they owned it a little bit more and they had in turn had more of a positive kind of uh view of the place and and you know wanted it to function whereas then there was mm-hmm. like a new uh, that he said there was kind of a younger newer set of people that had recently moved in that that they basically lo- saw the village as like something that they were just receiving they didn't spend that time working on it and developing ownership of it so it was for them more of this like landlord tenant type relationship and then they go this is a this is a rotten deal you know and they talk about you know you know, mold in their unit and, you know, I'm not I mean, that, getting... Yeah, that was true, though. There was mold in the units. Right, right. Yeah, but, that, that was, that was like, a couple of those units had to be demolished because of how bad they were. Right, right. I mean, it's been around five years and, 
not always yeah. long and tight in some of those yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes sense. But yeah, I mean, did, did you did you get a sense of that? I mean, was there kind of like, do you think that that, that aspect of if you were going to design a village that you wanted to function well, would you? This was the takeaway that I thought was that you would want to kind of always have some reason for people to be putting in work and constantly improving the site, constantly changing it and putting their time into it. And maybe that would give them a sense of ownership of the space, whether or not like the, you know, the money and the contract of, of the, the situation is that, you know? Yeah. I would agree that there were definitely people who, uh, when, when they came into the village, they immediately got that. This isn't mine. So I don't need to really work on an attitude. Um, and I think that's what what Carlos is talking about too, because uh, I would have been one of the newer people. I wouldn't have been one of the older stocks people he was talking about. Yeah. Um, but I was one of the people who got along very well with Carlos, and we would talk quite often about how, like, man, every every one of the things that the village needs to have happen, like a deep clean day and stuff like that. There's no reason why we can't turn that into an actual communal affair where we're building community. You know, there's no reason that we can't, if we plan it right and people actually actually pitch in and do the work, have a party that same day, you know, a little right. work party. But a, a lot of people were very uninterested and just wanted to do the bare minimum they had to to get by. Right. I, I think that's, again, getting very tired from capitalism. That's what? What from capitalism? Just getting very tired from, from capitalism, from... Yeah. From being homeless for so long and, and just having to figure out which of my necessities, which of my needs do I sacrifice to get my others met. Right, right, right. Yeah, I mean, and then, you know, just uh, the other the other idea that kind of came out from this experiment um, was I heard feedback that there's so many people coming from different angles in that, you know, that you might have somebody who's who's working to get um sober uh living next to somebody who's who's not there yet and who's coming home drunk all the time or you might have somebody who um has a lot of like post traumatic stress from um you know men beating them as a woman and um you know and then you have like uh you have like some somebody else who who's got like anger management issues and is you know kind of triggering or activating um and and so the the solution oh and also that there's there's so many different needs that everybody needs and so it's hard to uh, get all those resources there for each specific need and the thought was like it, it might make more sense to kind of group people by you know like have a, a women's village or uh you know narcotics uh people suffering from hard, hard drugs versus people that are suffering from alcohol. I don't know. But that was, I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Obviously the, the gender uh, separation doesn't work. Um, but yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm all for uh, serving niche communities. Um, I, I'm not necessarily opposed to the idea of uh, shelters that are specifically catered to women or assigned people assigned female at birth. Um, right. They're they're most commonly um, to be the victim in uh, assault and rape cases. So okay. I, I'm I'm not opposed to that at all. And as far as like the drugs and alcohol thing, I think that works really well too. 
um, especially to create a, like provide a space that these people would feel uh, particularly safe and and least likely to use. Um, right. Ultimately, it comes down to what's available for the people providing these villages, because um, you know if if you've got enough resources to put together like six or seven or eight little conestogas or or, or tent spots um, for people who are recovering, that's that's absolutely excellent. Um, you know, I, I don't know. It's, it's one of those things. Just like I, I love uh, Opportunity Village because, like, I do self-medicate. I medicate with cannabis, and I medicate uh, occasionally with alcohol. And I am allowed to come back to the village um, inebriated, so long as none of my other behaviors are a problem. And that hasn't been an issue, as far as I've known, um, with any other villagers since I've been staying there. But I do like the idea that there is a space that somebody who maybe would be um, triggered by seeing somebody drinking or seeing somebody who's under the influence, that they'd have a safe space of the same sort of design available. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and the other thing that came up was um, there's the privacy. The, the privacy, there's not a lot of privacy there, both physically, like there's a lot of nice places to sit, but they're you're always kind of with an eye shot. So, you know, you can't really kind of go and have a private conversation without everybody assuming that those so-and-so and so-and-so are talking. But also, yeah. like, like with, you know, with your situation, uh, you know, everybody was, was, was talking about it. Like, it, you know, it's a very personal situation and there wasn't like a, a mechanism for kind of to keep, keep things private and let, you know, because of the self-governance, is, is the feedback I got. You, everybody has to kind of look at everybody else's stuff. Uh, or yeah. That's, that's the wrong word. But everybody is in everybody else's business, and that that can also cause a lot of the the you know trauma and and hurt feelings and and conflict. Yeah, I could get that. I understand that. So that would sounds... you? Well, go how ahead. Would you? How would you? How would you deal with the privacy stuff? I mean, if we're if we're redesigning this you know based on the lessons of um this experience i mean i'm not the person to ask i uh, privacy for me is something that i've been deprived of for so long i've gotten kind of used to uh leading a very public life um mm. i mean to the extent of sharing like these events with you on on this podcast um like i i don't know uh Honestly, if you had more space to just put between units, um, we, we're currently on a space that's owned by the city that's being uh, leased to us. So uh, we only have so much space that we can use, and we have to zone it in a specific sort of way. Um, so it really depends on the space that you're using. You could also potentially, um, I don't know, various forms of partitions, uh, natural partitions, depending on what property you have. Mm. Um, I don't know. That's a tough one because, you know, you kind of need people to have access to, like, if you're using, doing public bathrooms and laundry and stuff like that, you kind of need those to be easily accessible by almost everyone. And ideally, everything should be uh, handicap accessible. So, like, the more that you put up in a village, like, to, to try and make it more privatized, the more you run the risk of making it less accessible. Right. Um, right. Yeah, I'm stumped. I'm stumped on that one. That's 
that's when I, I definitely didn't feel too private, but I didn't necessarily feel invaded. But, but like I said, I'm, I'm a fairly open person. So, mm. right. Well, what other, what other like design edits come to mind? I mean, if you, if you could, could make Ren, Ren's magic village, <laughs> uh, um, I mean, how would, how would you remake this? You pretty much it'd be small like efficiency tweaks to the design of the actual living spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a very cheap uh, form of lighting that you use bleach and uh, water, and depending on the concentration of bleach and water that you use in a clear plastic bottle, mm-hmm. uh, will refract the light um, to make a very nice fill light. If you then determine which direction to point your your shack and, like, line it up with the sun, you can get, like, a nice natural fill light so that people have very nice full lighting within their unit through most of the day. And if you set them up with um, lighting behind it, you can use that to flood a room with light during the night with a very simple light. Wow, Um, that's really cool. Yeah, little little tweaks like that. Um, I think accessibility is a big thing. Um, This village was built with... Um, all different peoples and minds, but I don't think they ever were uh, prepared for somebody in a wheelchair. I know that they mm-hmm. haven't taken anybody because they know they're not prepared, but that's right. something that I think is um, very important because there's a lot of people with disabilities um, on the streets, and the more spaces that we have that are accessible and available to them, the better. Yeah, Totally. I definitely did hear that feedback as well, and that there were some people that couldn't uh, do their chores, so they would actually pay other able-bodied people to do their chores for them. Yeah, yeah. I was uh, doing gate for a couple of people. Yeah. Um, Any other maybe uh, less physical design edits that you would do, you know, governance-wise? I mean... How do you get across I, – I, I mean, going back to the kind of governance piece, like a lot of people I heard, they just don't attend the meetings, right? There's not there's not so much – there's not really full participation because for a lot of people it's kind of – it just it stirs up too much for them and they, they rather, you know, they rather protect themselves. I mean, how, how, do you, how do you have governance, self-governance that doesn't impose so much on the participants? Uh, unfortunately, you don't. Um, you know, in order to self-govern, you yourself have to be a part of that governance process. And while I feel like it, like definitely people who have um, social anxieties that make uh, having to attend meetings and stuff like that, I get that. I understand not being able to go to meetings. But, um, you know, without following the standard procedures and making sure you knew what was talked about at that meeting, getting the meeting minutes, um, seeing that there's a vote coming up and then making sure that you get in a uh, uh, absentee vote ballot, then you can't govern yourself if you're not a part of the actual governing process. Um, and so if you're going to self-governing a model, unfortunately that means that if you are going to be a part of that system, you're going to have to participate in that way. So just step up and put the time in. Well, that's it. that's if you're doing self-governance, which I, I don't yeah. think is necessarily the way it has to go. I think there's there's multiple models to be explored. Um, hmm. 
I, I ultimately I think, like I said before, I think that this has potential for like a nationalized welfare sort of program if we figure out like what is the most feasible way to uh, enact it. Mm. Now, do you have do you have any ambition to like build your own or own your own tiny home that could move in and out of villages like this? Like, say you, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I'm putting a lot on you. This is maybe more my, my my dream, but uh, you know, to have my own tiny home that I could live in a village like yours. And then if life changes, move with my home to a new village or to a new, to a backyard or whatever. Do, do you have any of that ambition or interest or is that, is that just me? I mean, I, I think that's actually a really good idea. Um, I think a rent-to-own model is a really good idea with, with really, really low rent and, and you know, trying to do a communal model, uh, regardless of whether that's community uh, or, or um, uh, self-governed or, or if it's with um, a governance applied to it. Um, either way, I think having each uh, unit mobilized is really, really helpful. Um, you can then move them to another property should you need to. If a person purchases it, they can move it to another uh, property if they need to. Um, yeah, this is something that I kind of wanted to do. Um, I, I mostly wanted to get a commune that's uh, people that I know. I didn't necessarily want to provide housing for um, the homeless. I was more interested in, like, art outreach. I wanted to provide a... Um, art studio that people uh, have access to the space and to the supplies, get like a 3D printer, get like welding equipment and uh, industrial sized kitchen uh, so people can learn to cook from as little as 6 to 200, you know, however many. Um, but provide like a, a community sort of art center um, based around the commune and that would be the form of income for it. But communal living has always been a dream of mine. Wow, I like that. I like that uh, vision uh, a lot. Um, so is that is that kind of the direction you're going in? I mean, whether or not you make it back to Opportunity Village, it sounds like you're hoping you can. Um, what's you know what's 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 within sites? What's in, within Ren's you know sites for to reach for? Um, for right now, I'm I'm just looking to stabilize my own life. Um, get into some some proper housing. Um, ideally, try to get some casework so I can get like uh, so some of my needs that I can't satisfy myself. Get other people who are uh, better skilled at doing that sort of thing to help me out, um, mm -hmm. and then build a network of people until uh, I, I feel comfortable uh, trying to get some property somewhere and. And then essentially just building a, a little a little commune that sort of I don't know yeah that's that's essentially the goal but it's it's one of those things where like at, at this point in my life it's it's so far down on the list that I I have to focus more on like you know like uh, later tonight I still don't know where I'm sleeping tonight you know <laughs> like 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 I I've got ideas but I don't know for sure where where I'm gonna be resting my head I don't know for sure where my next meal is so right 
And that, that, that occupies a lot of mental space that you could be directing towards, you know, working towards these dreams. Is that, yeah. is that accurate? Yeah, yeah. And that was, that was ideally, like, that was for me what the opportunity in Opportunity Village was and hopefully will be. I mean, right. still got that appeal waiting. Right. And, and I, I definitely got a sense from some of the villagers, uh, you know, there's some people that have been there nearly from the start, right? Five years yeah. or close to it. And, and there's, there's like this kind of, uh, tension between there's this intent that people are supposed to be there as a transitional space and move on. But then there's, there's another, uh, viewpoint that this is the destination that, that people are comfortable, like want this to stay, Opportunity Village to stay, and they want to stay there. And I mean, in a way, Opportunity Village is kind of a version, or it could be, you know, it's a, a, a prototype of what a vision that you just articulated, right? I mean, yeah, way, yeah, you, yeah. You could add 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 a bunch of uh, you know welding equipment to Opportunity Village, and you know, <laughs> do a couple more edits, and maybe you're there. I don't know. Like, what do you think about that? As this is not like questioning the fact that it's, it's, it needs to be a transitional space. Like, could this be the destination for people? I, mean, I think it could be. I think, I think Opportunity Village itself as being a destination for people becomes like a nightmare of what people are licensed to do, a nightmare of what things are zoned for, a nightmare of like, you know, city agreements and stuff like that. Um, I think that that's not likely to become of like opportunity village, but I think the model definitely is something that that could be applied in that aspect. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of of I mean, there's a lot of opportunity in in these tiny house villages, and I I think like yeah, very much operating in that that way is is something that I think it gets rid of the the us and them a little bit too, and gets back to that sense of sort of like ownership. That there's how, how there's something you, there's something. That? Oh, just the the the. Um, I'm sorry, I, I'm I'm drawing a blank. I lost my train of thought. Oh, I'm sorry to do that. You were you were saying you were saying that it gets away. The, the owner tiny house villages add to that sense that need for a sense of ownership and i i don't know i i mean i guess i can guess as to why you said that but maybe yeah i mean you, you literally you could own your own house right in, in a more affordable way is that is that what yeah. you're saying yeah yeah that's what i'm i'm saying like the rent to own model i'm sorry i'm a little tired <laughs> No, no, it's all good. Uh, we 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 had a long uh, and eventful conversation. Um, I really appreciate your time and and your energy and uh, you your gift of your perspective uh, to everyone and to me because probably I'm the only one that's listening to this at this point. Um, but uh, is there any any final words, things that you would like to say to people uh, who have not uh, experienced your your world? Um, any, anything at all, any final words, doesn't even have to be about that, but anything you think you feel like people should, should know or hear about, think about? Um, when people say anything helps, uh, they, they really mean it. Like food, anything, clothes, like there's, there's definitely people that you'll, you'll meet that don't want what you have to offer, but like, I, I don't know. We, 
you'd be surprised what somebody really needs. I'm the sort of person who carries around tampons with no personal use for them, but knowing that somebody's going to need it. So, like, mm-hmm. I, I like to have it on me to, to give to people. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess uh, that pay it forward, you know. Um, be be excellent to each other, you know. Uh, <laughs> that's that's ultimately it. I, I I learned that that's the the best thing that I can do is be excellent to the people around me, and it makes a lot of the shit that I have to deal with a lot easier. Um, yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. Just just be kind, um, and and everything helps. Anything helps. Right on. Well, thank you so much, Red. And uh, yes. where where can people find you if they would like to get a hold of you? Or- um, they could contact me at my email address, uh, dcf, as in Frank, I-N-E-O-U-T at gmail.com. Um, I'm available on Facebook, uh, Ren Finout. I do take friend requests from strangers. I know it's a really bad idea, but I do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Ren. Have have a great yeah. night. Yeah, take thank care. you for your time. Okay, take care. Bye. Thank you for listening. The music is by Paul Simon and Lady Smith Black Mambasso from the Graceland album, one of the greatest albums of all time. This podcast is inspired by the work of Tiny Logic. For more information, visit tinylogic.ninja. While this song is super beautiful, let's stop singing it.